book of Colossians again this morning as we continue our way through this book, Colossians chapter 1. We considered last week the supremacy of Christ, His preeminent power, His wonder, who He is, and we consider again the significance of Christ in our walk with the Lord, our knowledge of Christ is crucial. He is God, He is God incarnate, He is the giver of life to His people. And let's pray that the Lord would help us to understand who Christ is and our calling in this world to live for His glory. We thank You, Lord, for this prayer that we have offered, that You would draw us nearer to You. And I pray that together in this time that we might do just that, that we would consider who Christ is in all of His glory that we cannot plumb the depths of that glory and see it for all that it is. And it's very clear that we cannot, for we would not be the people that we are. But I pray that we would take a glimpse in, a deeper glimpse, and that this passage of Scripture would sanctify and transform us, and that you would point us again to Christ as our heart's desire, as our hope, as the security for eternal reward in your presence. We pray, Father, together for those who know not Christ the Savior and pray that you would bring them to a knowledge of his wonder and of his goodness and of his saving grace. And together may we rejoice as we deepen our roots in our knowledge of Christ and in our knowledge of your word. Please use this gathering together here this morning for all that you intend it to accomplish. We pray that by your Spirit, that we would walk in a manner worthy and being taught in the written Word of God. Together we gather around it here in anticipation and asking for your help and aid. Through Christ we pray. Amen. In today's self-oriented culture, we insist on personalized instruction that directly improves our lives. We welcome counsel that is tailored to our personal interests, especially if it respects our precious time. Instruct me in what I need to know for me. Give me that instruction and I'll receive it. In fact, many churches have tapped this orientation by offering sermons that address only the most practical of topics, which contribute directly to self-improvement. I need to be able to see it and understand it as it is described, that it is directly helpful to me. The sermon's not about me, it's a waste of my time. So then, say churches, let's talk about you, shall we? Let's talk about you incessantly, week after week after week, of how you can improve your life. One of the sad losses of this self-absorption is the capacity and the discipline to learn from the real-life example of worthy people. To step back and say, this is not an address directly about me and to me as such, but to step back from that and to learn the discipline of learning from the the life and example of others. Rather than gleaning wisdom from past generations, we live in a culture that spends its time rewriting history to rewrite it according to what we want it to be. We love stories, make no mistake, but we feed that interest not with biography, 
but by turning to the playland of movies and novels. Now there's a legitimate place for fictional storytelling in our lives. I think it's a fairly large place. There's also a place for practicality in sermons. It should be clear how sermons affect us and how we are called to change. But as a culture, we are losing the character-building discipline of focusing keen attention on the life experiences and example of worthy people. So as we come to this text today, I make these statements, which I would not make in other cultures, but I make it in this culture because we need this going in. We come to the text before us today in Colossians chapter 1 and must think about it counterculturally from the outset. In fact, we need to think a bit counterculturally as we read the entire Bible, particularly with all of its narrative. Narrative that's intended for us to learn how to walk with God. And I encourage you then this morning to walk with this, through this text with me, armed with that keen sense of the sanctifying power of historical biography, particularly that which is revealed by the Holy Spirit. We've read a section of that today. Uh, from the book of 2 Corinthians. We have seen the example of the Apostle Paul, and we come again to it today, and really in verses 24 and following down through chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul talks about himself, and we find here the DNA of a nearly peerless evangelist and ambassador for Christ. We need to come into this knowing that we can be influenced by this man, influenced by his example, and in fact, as we consider the ministry of the Apostle Paul, we are ourselves transformed, and that is the, the Holy Spirit's intention here. As Paul recounts his life experience and heart orientation, we find valuable themes that instruct us and edify us in the essence of the Christian life. I think we understand that, but just to encourage us forward in that understanding of Christian biography, there is a feeding of deep roots in who we are and how we look at life. So someone on a very shallow level may say, I came to church today to hear about me and how I can improve my life and how I can be a better person. I'm having struggles in this area, and this is about some old guy. Lived, is an ancient guy that lived a long time ago writing to people who are long dead. What does this have to do with me? Well, we know as believers in Christ that our faith stretches through the generations. It connects across the nations of the earth. And there is a connectivity to our walk with God that we find here in Paul's example as he lays it out for us. So let's feed on that and see these themes together today. In a somewhat arbitrary way, I'm going to divide out three specific areas, three themes that arise out of this text. I say in somewhat arbitrary way because in some sense it's all one point. Paul is saying, here's my heart. I'm laying it out here for you to see, Colossian believers and others that I'm influencing in connection with you. Here it is. Here's my heart. But let me break it out into three, and first of all, we find here in verse 24, the sufferings of Christ, of, of Paul rather, Paul's sufferings for Christ as an evangelist. Verse 23, he starts there by speaking of the gospel that you heard, you see at the end of chapter 1, verse 23, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
as a minister, he lays out his heart and says, here it is. It involves suffering. Verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That is a profound statement. I rejoice that I am suffering for you. Paul's experience reminds us that when we proclaim the gospel, let's hear it again, suffering is normal. When we proclaim the gospel in its fullness, in truth, suffering is normal. The message of Christ crucified and risen in order to rescue sinners from God's wrath is advanced against the hostile powers of darkness. We must always recognize this. This would cause many people to run away. But we know that it is a privilege. And as Paul says here, he rejoices to suffer for others, to take this message to them. Last month, a pastor and two fellow believers determined to show a video depicting the life of Jesus to villagers in India. They knew it was risky. They prayed. They had to be courageous, and they took this movie into the village, showing it outside. People began to gather, and as they were watching the the film, radical Hindus came in, broke up the meeting, locked these men in a room after beating them, and then called the police. Rather than coming to the aid of these men, the police incarcerated them and charged them with forcing Hindus to convert to Christ. How do you read that? I mean, our heart goes out to these who so suffer in this way, but one way we should read that account is say, normal. That's normal. That's what happens when you attack the powers of darkness. That's going to be the response. That's normal. And we pray for their release. We pray that they will continue to serve Christ and proclaim the gospel. And this is Paul's response himself in the midst of his suffering. And we read of some of the depths of that suffering earlier this morning. What does he say? I rejoice. I rejoice. The gospel was crushing the gates of hell. And one of the evidences was the belief in the gospel by these Colossians. And one of the other evidences on the other side of it is the attack of Satan. I rejoice that I was privileged to suffer for you to bring this message to you. And So he says in the latter part of verse 24, And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. It wasn't, wow, did we ever have some bad times over there. Have I ever run into some nasty people, some crooked government, governmental leaders? That's not how he responds. He said, this is normal. This is God's plan. And here it is. In my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. What does that mean? Is Paul saying that Jesus' death to atone for sin was incomplete? Of course not. Did Paul's physical suffering contribute a necessary sacrifice to complete the Colossians' salvation? Be heretical. What he's saying, it seems, is that from the time of Jesus' coming, Until his final return, a certain amount of suffering will take place to bring into the body of Christ those who will come to trust him, and God knows who they are, and he knows how much suffering is necessary to get them all into the fold. I have been participating in that by completing some of that suffering for the body of Christ. I think that's his point. 
the church he speaks of there at the end of verse 24, of which, verse 25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Remember, the gospel always travels. He has brought it to the Colossians and for their sake he has proclaimed it. He's been a minister to this end, a steward from God. That is one assigned responsibility to make the word of God fully known. It is for this reason that Paul suffered and was now in prison, namely to make the message of Christ known, to proclaim it. He's done that with them. It has led to suffering, but he rejoices that the message has been delivered. Now again, it's a sub-point here, something of a rabbit trail off of the main trail at verse 26, but I'm going to divide it out just thematically to say, as we look now at the message of this evangelist, we look at his suffering for the delivery of the gospel of Christ, we look now at his message. What was his message? He, he focuses in on that here at verse 26. The mystery, so he's declaring the word of God, verse 26, which is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. The mystery. And in this, as we come to know the gospel, we need to recognize this idea. The mystery, a truth about God's saving plan that he kept hidden from man and undiscoverable by man, but now has revealed at exactly the right time. God has always had a salvation plan. It didn't come with contingencies. It didn't come with a, it wasn't reworked along the way. He has always known what his salvation plan will be, but he doesn't reveal all of that to us until it's the right time. So little by little, over time, he reveals the mystery. A mystery, not uh, uh, who did it, but uh, here in the sense of what is veiled or what is hidden from sight until the right time. Paul, going back to what he says here in verse 26, this mystery was hidden for ages and generations. God had always intended to send Christ who's crucified from before time in the mind of God and the purposes of God. But it was hidden until now it's been revealed to the saints. Old Testament revelation pointed to Jesus' death to pay sin's penalty for His people. But it was not until Christ took on flesh and came into this world that it was revealed to us precisely how God intended to save His people ultimately. The mystery has been unveiled. The curtain has been drawn back. God has made clear that our salvation is in Christ. He's made this clear at the end of verse 26 to His saints to the holy ones, to those who have responded in faith, coming out of the alienation and darkness that he spoke of in 121 and following. We've been reconciled through the death of Christ, this mystery unveiled to see that truth. Verse 27, to them, that is to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory we got a mouthful there. Uh, but that's the beauty of the gospel right there in a nutshell. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles. It includes the Gentiles in the plan of God. This has been now revealed. The riches of the glory of this mystery. It is a glorious mystery. It is filled with glorious riches. 
who God revealed the glorious truth of a believer's union with Christ is really what's at the heart of it. You see that there at the ver- at end of verse 27. It's this. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the essence of it. Christ in me, my being united with Christ, that is the hope of glory. That is the confidence that I have of being rightly reconciled to God, of sins forgiven, and of a future in His presence. Our identity in Christ is the guarantee that we will enter the realm of glory with Christ in the future. And it is essential to get this message right. This is much of what the book of Colossians is doing. It is seeking to say, this is what that mystery is. This is who Christ is. Christ is the source of our life. He is the focus that we are to have in our Christian walk as we consider entering eternity. So Paul proclaims the gospel and suffers for it. And we see the content of the message that he has proclaimed. Our union, our being united with Christ as Savior. That leads to a third theme that takes up the remainder of the section. And that is Paul's zeal as an evangelist. This is what continues to come to the surface. And again, it does throughout the whole uh, text, the whole passage. But we see here these repeated references to the zeal of Paul to the energies and the motivations that drive him to proclaim this message. Verse 28, Him we proclaim, that is, we proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Christ is Paul's message, and he declares that message with warning And with teaching, warning is admonition, it's correction, it's saying don't head down that path, or stop going this way. And teaching is here is the the more positive side of the equation, here is who Christ is. We proclaim Him, warning and teaching with all wisdom, why? What's His motivation? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is what drives Him. Present them how? Present them mature. The idea is above reproach. Present them where? At their final meeting with Christ. We need to take Paul's example to heart. Our spiritual maturity and union with Christ must be the central goal of Eden Baptist Church. Let me say that again. Our spiritual maturity in union with Jesus Christ, must be the central goal of Eden Baptist Church. That will distinguish us, certainly, from some churches. That will turn some people away who are not really desirous to be part of that agenda. If you prioritize, for instance, the goal of finding friends you can hang out with and whose company you enjoy, you may be using the church for your own selfish purposes. Friendship's a good thing. It's not wrong to pursue it. But when we see the church primarily as a friendship-generating social entity, we are abusing the church for a purpose that God has not assigned to it as a priority. 
when a church's goal is financial prosperity or renown, when it seeks to make a name for itself, to draw attention to itself, it is living at counter-purposes with God's agenda. It's fairly straightforward here, but I think, and I would encourage you together, let's embrace verse 28 and say this is what it's about. We proclaim Him. We don't announce ourselves, we proclaim Christ. What this church should be about is announcing Jesus. Drawing attention to the exalted and risen Christ and all that He is doing to transform the lives of His people. That's our business. Warning and teaching that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That we may bring people to a place of being above reproach because they know Christ. Just think if Jesus walked into our lives... Totally hypothetical, okay? He's not going to do that. But if he did, if he came back here to walk among us, and we had the experience of the disciples to know Christ, there'd only be two people here. Those wanting to crucify him and those willing to lay down their life for him. You spend any time with Jesus and you walk into one of those two camps. In the absence of Christ, we have all kinds of waffling. We have all kinds of sin that takes root in our lives. All kinds of competing agendas and priorities. Paul says Jesus isn't here. He's not here with you. If you knew him, if he walked with you for several years, you'd either kill him or you'd lay down your life for him. But here in the absence of the, of the specific presence of Christ, through the Spirit of God, here's the agenda that we would present everyone mature in Christ. Slowly, through teaching and admonition over time, coming to see who Christ is and being transformed by that. And so he says, I toil to this end. He desired that actively, purposefully, that each one would invest themselves in the knowledge of Christ. And he, in his efforts, supported it, praying for it, encouraging the church to pursue it. Verse 29, toiling and struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. Toiling and struggling. Paul pours out his life energies to serve the spiritual growth of the Colossians. This is not a minister of Christ. I mean, we get close to this man. We get close to the agenda that he has. This is not a minister of Christ who's simply punching a time clock. He's not collecting a paycheck. He did not go through the motions with a mind that was really concentrated elsewhere. And just using people and using the church situation to help himself along in life. That is not what we see here. I toil and I struggle for your maturity in Christ, he says. Paul agonized to the point of exhaustion over the growth and spiritual development of the Colossians. What did that include? What, what does he mean? I'm toiling and struggling. In what way? He's praying for them. He's bringing their names before the Lord and he is working diligently in prayer that God would produce in them what we've seen in the first part of chapter 1. That they would grow in Christ. He is certainly discipling, that is getting with people and talking to them about the Scriptures. Admonishing and teaching. He's teaching, he is preaching, he is fighting false teachers. He is toiling and laboring to see them formed 
in Christ. In his book on spiritual leadership, J. Oswald Sanders tells the story of a friend who was alarmed at the frenetic pace of Michelangelo, who, by the way, is not a turtle, but an artist for a few of you that may not know. But this man, you read about the life of Michelangelo, it's, it's, it's scary. The guy had abilities that were otherworldly. And he was so driven because of these skills that he had to put them into use. And he, he was a man touched by heaven in some unique way in his abilities. But his friends said, you're going to kill yourself. You're going to die. This may cost your life, he said on one project that Michelangelo, he wasn't sleeping, he wasn't eating, he was pouring his life into this project to get it done on time. He said, do you realize you may kill yourself? And Michelangelo said this, what else is life for? What else is life for but to give it away? And How much more should this be true of us? Paul exemplifies the Spirit. What else is life for, he could say? I've been called by God to take the message of Christ and to labor for the maturity of God's people. What else is life for? What am I going to hold on to it for? Yes, there's a place for rest and there's a place for rejuvenating. We even see that in Paul's life and experience. But he poured his life out on this grand mission of the risen Christ. But as hard as he worked, you notice here, he doesn't say, I'm really a special person because of the faith that I have. But what does he say there at verse 29? With all his energy that he powerfully works within me. There are spiritual muscles that have developed. There is, in the example of Michelangelo, a a sort of gift from heaven that is given to this individual to do artwork in a freakishly capable manner. Paul was a unique individual, uniquely touched by God to proclaim the gospel of Christ. But as one continues forward and matures in Christ, there is a supply of heaven's grace to carry on with the energies that God alone can supply. And Paul knows that. It's the energy that he is powerfully working within me. And so I think in response here, it is not for us to say, let's get busier, let's work harder, let's depend on ourselves a little bit more to accomplish more for Christ, but it is to start on our knees. It is to start in prayer and to ask that God would supply an energy we don't have. An interest and a motivation that comes from God Himself to lead us, to give ourselves to seeing that everyone would be mature in Christ touching those around us, that we would be pointing unbelievers to Christ as Savior, and that we would be encouraging believers to walk in faithfulness and fellowship with the Lord. We need His energy. Paul had it. He recognized that that was the key. We have a very, I think, poor chapter division here as we move into chapter 2. You see the word for, sometimes that can signal a very significant break, Uh, but it's always, of course, pointing back to what comes before, and I think take that chapter 2 out of there and you don't even know that he stopped 
in the direction he's going, and I think that's because he hasn't, just a poor place for a, a chapter division, but it continues right on, which he says, I, I'm toiling, I'm struggling that Christ would be formed in you with the power of God for chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those that lay out a sea and for all who have not seen my face. Not see me face to face is, is an in, uh, English idiom, but they, they hadn't seen him in the flesh. Laodicea, a town 12 miles from Colossae, and Paul is struggling for the Colossians and for the Laodiceans, even though he's not seen them. His answer again, why is he struggling? The answer reveals his zeal for the mission. What is it? Verse 2 connects very closely to verse 28. That their hearts may be encouraged and being knit together in love to reach all to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Three weeks could go into that simple statement in that verse. Here's one of Paul's ways uh, in his sentences. But that their hearts may be encouraged. I, I want them to be in complete in Christ, that they would take encouragement from their knowledge of Christ. And I think probably a little bit more of a second idea than the text indicates here. But that their hearts may be encouraged, one. Number two, that they would be knit together in love. Like the... Um, phrase can be taken that way as kind of a second idea, a little more distinct from encouraged than we have here in the text, but that they would be unified, encouraged and united. Two marks of spiritual maturity, encouraged hearts that trust God's promises and love for one another as Christ's body. I mean, here's a benchmark. Do I find my heart filled with the encouragement of what Christ has done for me? I sing these songs earlier this morning. All I have is Christ with joy and thanksgiving. My heart is filled with confidence in His security, in His securing me. Do I find that I love God's people? That I'm beginning to tap into the love that God had for them to send His Son to die and I'm sensing that same love for God's people, not just the ones that like me and that I like, not just the ones that cooperate with my agenda or walk with me in the way I want them to, but toward all of the people for whom Christ died, united. Two marks of spiritual maturity, encouraged hearts and love for God's people. And our prayers for one another then should be rich with requests that we would see this kind of growth in one another. That we would be growing in confidence and joy and thanksgiving with encouraged hearts and loving one another. Not disheartened or bitter or angry or factious, but united. Paul's zealous goal continues there in verse 2. To reach all the riches of the full assurance of the understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. I don't, I, I don't think he did it for this reason, but which is Christ helps you figure it out if you can't figure out anything else that's there in that long string. It's Christ. That's the riches. That's the treasure. That's the understanding and knowledge we're pressing to in this mystery. The knowledge of God's mystery is Christ. So Paul did not labor to assure that people knew him. His hope was not that the Colossian believers would revere him and do whatever he wished, 
but he labored to exhaustion to see that they understood the message of Christ. The key to spiritual growth is knowing who Christ is and what he has done to save us, and we must never forget that. It is weeding out sin. It is dealing with the issues of our life. It is growing in the fruit of the Spirit, but it is at its very heart and core knowing Jesus. How do we know Him? How well do we know Him? I mean, we never lose this. The key to spiritual growth is not finding that book that's eluded you. It's finding Christ. It's knowing Him for who He is. The gospel then, very clearly, is not just a way to escape hell and secure salvation for, or a reservation for heaven. The gospel is the orienting reality of everything in the Christian's life. It's the orienting reality of everything. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, we believe in the sun not merely because we see it, but because by it we see everything else. And so we should take that idea believing in Jesus Christ, not only because we see His glory as we look at Him, but because by Christ's glory, we see everything else as it truly is. It is in the crucifixion, the coming, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the reign and return of Christ that we see everything. It puts all of life into perspective. So the Gospel should change everything that we do and how we think. You remember... Paul's appeal to the Corinthians to give toward the the needy in Jerusalem. And how does he appeal to them? How does he motivate them? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, He wants them to be filled with grace toward these needy believers. And he says, you know the grace of Christ. That's what I want you to think about. I mean, he could shame them. And in some ways, he puts on some psychological motivation on them to give that gift. But he says, when we get down to the heart of it, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He's saying, now, here's how you should look at these needy believers in Jerusalem. You're rich, they're poor. Pour out your grace that through impoverishing yourself, you will enrich them. Rightly understood and rightly balanced. It's Christ that is the motivation. It's the gospel that leads them to consider how to do this practical ministry issue. Or we take Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. As Christ loved the church. The gospel changes the way I talk to my wife. It changes the way that I relate to her, how I know her, how I go about life together. It's all in the light of the gospel of Christ. So we must think and so we must live our lives. Speaking of Christ, Paul exhorts the Colossians to know indeed that in Him, verse 3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In the sense that they are deposited in Christ. They reside in Him. The emphasis not on the fact that we need to discover these treasures, although learning and loving and hard work will certainly be required, but He is the source of of these treasures. Knowing Christ is the greatest of all earthly treasures. Do you know this? Do you believe it truly? 
My knowledge of Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure in this world. Knowing Christ is the greatest of all earthly treasures. If you could choose every earthly pleasure to enjoy for all eternity in unlimited abundance, and the only thing you had to do in order to have that was to sever your relationship with Christ, would you do it? Through all eternity, I can have everything I want in abundant supply eternally as long as I just sever my relationship with Christ. To do so, you would be the worst of fools. You would be embracing delusional idolatry and you would be left absolutely empty. In fact, you may feel that you are empty now. That the purpose of life, the joy of life, the encouragement of heart of which we're speaking is eluding you. You don't know what the purpose of life is. You don't know what the source of joy and happiness is. You keep thinking as if I can just get the things that I want, if I can just become the person that I want to be, then maybe. But every time you make any advance, it just ends up to be more emptiness. One of the good things in this moment, if I'm talking to you directly, is that you have the answer. You have the answer. It is Christ. You say, yeah, but that's not working. It's not working for me. Well, you don't really have the answer, as you should. You have the answer in that you know that it is Christ, but if it's not working, it's not Jesus that's the weakness. Know that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Him is everything that you need. Come to Him. Come in prayer. Come in humility. Come before Him knowing that this is who He is. He is the answer. You don't have to look further. But you do have to look deeper. If knowing Christ has left you empty, then you don't know Christ. Keep coming. Don't abandon the path. I say this, he brings to conclusion the section, verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. As the evangelist suffers, so the recipients of the gospel face the stiff opposition of those who would oppose the faith. These opponents of the truth offer plausible arguments. We know this. The New Testament says this. They sound right. They make some sense. They get us to blush at what we believe. Given their presuppositions, they are rational arguments as they develop. They're around us all of the time attacking the faith. And what is the key? An orthodox understanding of Jesus Christ is the greater value against all arguments. It is the greater value against every argument. There's an empty grave. We've experienced a cleansed conscience and we have the witness of the Spirit that we are the children of God through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There will be challenges to our faith. There will be plausible arguments that cause us to doubt. But let's remember that what we have is Christ and in Him is the answer to every challenge to faith. 
Verse 5, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul was in a Roman prison in Italy, and they were far off in the Lycus Valley of western Turkey. And yet Paul rejoiced because they held strong to their faith in Christ. One commentator said the epistle is a vaccination against heresy, not an antibiotic for those already afflicted. I think that comes out here. I see your good order. I see that you're standing firm in your faith in Christ. He wants to encourage them to continue on. Well, as you just take that passage for what it is, it's all about the Apostle Paul, isn't it? It's all about his relationship with, a, with several communities of believers that are now long gone. And yet this passage is about everything that matters in our lives. Why would we invest ourselves in considering the story of an ancient Jew? What good could that do to us, particularly when he's writing to people who are so long gone? As we consider what animates and motivates and drives Paul, we are led to ask, we have to ask, what animates, what drives me? This is the beauty of biography. It forces us to stop and see ourselves from a different perspective. This is where I see the anemic results of everything has to be about me and directly instructing me about me. When we stand back and we look at others, we are instructed. Ultimately, it is as we look at Christ. But here, as Paul follows Christ, we see the suffering, the expected reality, the normal of proclaiming the gospel. It points to the cosmic triumph in which we participate when we stand for Christ. It reveals the importance of our mission. It's actually worth suffering for. I'm so thankful that I follow a Savior that's worth suffering for. I mean, it wouldn't be too hard to advance a religion where you can take people out. At least you got a chance of living. With Christ, we lay down our lives. That's what He did for us, and that's what we do for those to whom we take the message. It's an evidence of the importance of that message and of its rightness. We're reminded here, secondly, of the central importance of an external message from God revealed to us with the coming of Christ. That this mystery has been given to us and it transforms. It it will be a lifelong study. We will ever be coming to understand the significance of Christ crucified and risen. Never get to the bottom of it and its significance in our lives. It's a lifelong study and it's a lifelong labor to integrate our lives to the wonder of that story. Then we see His zeal. And the challenge is to invest our lives in the mission of the risen Christ. What He is carrying forward as He longs to change lives. That we may present everyone mature in Christ should be at the heart, the core of why we relate to each other as a church. And so whatever we do in this waking world, wherever God takes this church, wherever He takes us as individuals, may we ever know that this church exists to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. It's His church. We are His people. We are His conquest. And we are the evidence 
of a new life that will be consummated in glory. Let's labor together. Let's work together. Let's toil and strive that we may help present one another above reproach in Christ, purified, strengthened, and increasingly filled with the knowledge that sees all of life in light of the death and resurrection, the reign and the coming return of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a, this is a Christian church. May we labor together as members to assure that that's not taken as a simply a cultural, social word, but that it defines the very essence of who we are, the people of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our coming King. And let's take the message of Him to a needy world. Let's bow for prayer. We need Your help, Lord, to that end. We pray that You would provide that strength that we so need, that we would toil and struggle with all Your energy, that You powerfully work within us as we have come to union with Christ. Those who have not come to that place, who do not see Jesus as the ultimate treasure in this life and the next for all eternity, I pray that You would bring them to conviction and to help them to see that they're chasing idols which will never satisfy. But in Christ we find full satisfaction. We thank You for this. We thank You for sending Your Son. And we thank You that He laid down His life to suffer for us. May we be willing to take up the work and to suffer the reproaches, the rebuke of this fallen world as we proclaim Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Bring us to that knowledge. Bring us to that experience. And may you purify us that we may stand mature in Christ before him someday. Aid us to this end, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. It's never right for us to hear the things that we have heard and then to just dismiss ourselves.